Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 146. Have you heard about a Python library with optimized data structures and built-in operations that can speed up your data science code? This week on the show, Jody Birchall, developer advocate for data science at JetBrains, returns to share secrets for harnessing linear algebra and NumPy for your projects. Jody details how most people begin their data science journey using loops to iterate over values and apply operations sequentially. We talk about how loops are friendly for beginners, being clear to read and easy to debug, but unfortunately don't scale well, especially with large amounts of data. Jody shares some of the basics of linear algebra and how to organize data into vectors. We talk about how the NumPy library leverages those concepts to improve processing data. We discuss how the library includes operations for vector and matrix addition and subtraction, and why these operations are more efficient than loops. We also cover how NumPy stores arrays in memory, and when working with them is faster or when it's not. This episode is brought to you by Influx Data. The Influx DB time series platform empowers developers and organizations to build real time IoT, analytics, and cloud applications with time stamped data. Learn more at influxdata.com. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Jody, welcome back. Hey, I am so happy to be here and first episode of 2023. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How are your holidays? They were so lazy. I... <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, I did have to venture out once for a friend's birthday party, but honestly, it was just, it was amazing. I slept so much. I ate so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, similar. <laughs> yeah. That and I played a bunch of video games, so. <laughs> it was perfect. I read a bunch of books. It was great. Yeah. So, hey, we're kind of in between conference seasons. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and uh, you had this talk that we're going to kind of get into today, uh, you've done a few times, and I'll definitely link to one of the ones that you had done at, what was it, PyCon UK, you said? PyCon UK, yeah. Yeah, what's the title again? It is Vectorize All the Things. <laughs> so basically, the idea behind the talk and what we're going to be talking about in the episode today is how you can understand how these vectorized operations that you implement in NumPy, you know, understand what's going on under the hood in terms of the math, but also understood why they're faster. And I I actually was inspired to give this talk because like, I came, I think I've talked about this. I came into tech, I came into uh, Python, like really just not understanding anything. And I used to do everything with loops and yeah, it was just so slow. And I was like, I, I know that it's faster. Like, I know there's a way to make this faster, sorry. And so I'd Google, you know, how to speed up X operation. I'd be like, use this NumPy vectorized operation. I'd be like, I don't understand what this is doing. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to change my code to make this work. So, right. yeah, this is sort of uh, maybe a bit of a story of my journey of how I came to appreciate NumPy better, how I came to understand it sort of wanting to demystify and break it down for people who might sort of be in the same situation and struggling a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. A very, a very pat answer is why aren't you doing, you know, vectorized operations? And it's like, well, okay. I don't you know. <laughs> I need <laughs> to understand how those kind of work and, exactly. you know, where to look to, to set up the code. And I'm comfortable doing loops already. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I'll just, uh, you know, make coffee or whatever. <laughs> we joked about that before we're, you know, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, but it's nice to kind of switch and, Part of it is terminology. You, in your talk, talk a lot, a lot about kind of the concepts of just being comfortable with the fundamentals of linear algebraic terms, uh, not necessarily, you know, needing to do a bunch of that stuff on paper, but just understanding kind of so that you can sort of visualize them. And that makes it a little hard to do as a podcast form. And so if people would like supplemental information, the, the talk, I think, can help you add some 
little bit of additional visuals if if you're still kind of a little stuck on it. Mm-hmm. But we'll do our best to try to make sure that that it's clear as we go. And lots of questions. We were kind of joking about our our mathematical backgrounds, if you will, like what we studied in school. And mm-hmm. I uh, <laughs> I I had this kind of really bad experience. I was like a, a super A student all the way through high school, and then I got to my last you know, year, senior year in the States. And we had this weird fiasco happen where my calculus teacher ended up being like removed from his position. Oh my God. <laughs> and the person they replaced him with was my physics teacher. Oh, and no. she was terrible at teaching calculus. She was a fantastic physics teacher. Mm-hmm. And the person they brought in for the physics was really bad too. So it was like, <clears throat> I'd, I'd never had this happen before, but I lost interest in both subjects. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, yeah. And it like that went into like kind of my college experience and the the college experience I had at at Arizona State, which is now a fine university, but at the time, late 80s, Mm. was pretty lacking. And I just kind of burned out on all of it. And I got really into music and dropped out of school and did music. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So I only kind of came back to programming much later. And so it's kind of kind of a bummer for me, but you said that in Australia, you had an interesting sort of math journey. What was the term you used? Um, there are two types of math. Oh, there's like advanced math and not so advanced math. Like it's obviously <laughs> not called that, but um, right. yeah, yeah. So um, it's kind of like interesting because I think I had maybe the opposite sort of journey to you. So okay, I grew up in this quite small town and I wasn't really encouraged to pursue math, even though I was good at it. Uh, yeah. So I actually, like, I did a lot of humanities. So I studied art and I studied, I'm really bad at art, but I studied it. <laughs> sure. I studied music, actually. I used to play French horn. I studied history and I studied English literature. So I did math, but it wasn't really like, you know, advanced mathematics. Right. And it meant that when I went to uni and then I had to do all these statistics, I didn't necessarily have like the formal linear algebra background. I did have calculus, but we didn't really do much linear algebra. And um, obviously this was kind of a problem when I started trying to learn machine learning, especially neural nets and, and deep learning, because so much of it is based on linear algebra. So actually I got so frustrated. It was a few years back. I'm like, I'm so sick of like half understanding this. Like I just don't (laughs) understand what they're talking about when they're talking about these like matrix and transformations and stuff. I sat down and there's this incredible series of lectures. It's a course from MIT and it's available on um, MIT Open Courseware. Okay. By this, he's this legendary professor called Gilbert Strang. I will share the, the link. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely put that in the notes. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, this man is one of the most brilliant teachers I've ever seen. And um, he actually has some more recent books, which are kind of more focused on linear algebra for machine learning and optimization and things like that. But the core kind of book that he has and the course that goes along with it are just, it, it's not even applied. It's not even something like, except for maybe like principal components analysis, which is taught in that course. Okay. It's not even stuff that you would be able to apply directly to machine learning, but it's so fascinating and yeah like I think it was just one of those things where I was like okay like this actually wasn't difficult and it's really fun yeah I think I would find it way more interesting you know and and that always can be the teacher you know and that's Mm -hmm. why I love trying to share as many resources and you know kind of look at different ways to kind of bring stuff in because like i love learning, you know, that's like mm-hmm. kind of why I do what I'm doing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, so it's always amazing when you could find a, a teacher that just has a, a great methodology for getting us into it. So that sounds fun. Yeah, yeah. I guess we need to kind of break into the main topic, the idea that yes, that uh, we use loops all the time. And mm-hmm. those are some of the fundamental Python tools mm-hmm. and they can get the job done. Mm-hmm. But when you start moving into these larger sort of almost big data types of problems or like I said, machine learning problems where you're training on massive data sets and so forth, that the inefficiency just becomes uh, sort of extraordinary. <laughs> so Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like the point I was at when I started in Python, like I suppose I never really took like refactoring code seriously when I first started. Because again, I didn't have an engineering mindset. Okay. So, you know, lists are super easy to use. They're super flexible. They're super permissible. 
Loops are great because they're super easy to read and they're super easy to debug. Yeah. But the biggest problem with them, and this was something I didn't appreciate until I started dealing with large amounts of data, is that they're sequential. So every operation follows the next. Yeah. And when you're dealing with large lists, and when you're dealing with nested loops, and we're going to come to that a little bit later in the podcast, you really start getting into like hundreds of millions of operations yeah. very, very easily. So Very much an internal multiplication. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. exactly. So um, I think the, the point that I like started getting really frustrated, it was like a few jobs ago. And I was sitting there and I, I ended up having to do some sort of nested loop for something. And I ended up doing like a quick calculation of how long it would take. And I was like, this is going to take five hours. Like, how is this possible? And I think yeah. this is what... That's a really long lunch. I know. I'm like, this is such a simple thing that I need to do. And it's essential. Like, it's a data processing step I have to do. I think at that point, I actually just went and learned Spark. Um, but that was not really the solution to the problem. Like, yeah, yeah, it was throw, a bit... throw more tools or hardware at exactly, it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just, you know, let's just make it a GPU problem. But it that wasn't really, you know... Refactoring the code actually would have solved the problem quite nicely. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, as I said, like what I want to do is sort of start with a little bit of the basic linear algebra. And when I say basic, I mean, we're going to talk about real basic stuff. Like you do not need any background in this field. And you'll kind of see how far you could get with some very simple concepts. Yeah. And if you've been playing around with data science at any level, just even setting up simple matrices mm -hmm. or you think about doing multiple lists, you know, this is definitely going to you know, make sense. It's just a matter of translating it. Exactly, exactly. Like if you've uh, ever had to, say, pass variables into an sklearn model or like you've played a little bit with Keras or something and you've had to transform uh, variables to tensors, you're going to you're gonna understand this a little bit better if you didn't kind of know what you were doing as well. So yeah, I hope you'll get a lot of... No, uh, mileage out of the knowledge. Yeah, cool. Cool. So yeah, let me jump into some linear algebra basics. So when you're kind of thinking of linear algebra, you have basic units. So I think of the most basic unit in linear algebra as a vector. If you've listened to our episodes about natural language processing, the first one, yeah. we actually do talk about uh, vectors. We talk about them in the context of word embeddings and also like count vectorization and things like that. But basically what a vector is, is an ordered sequence of numbers. So you have a bunch of numbers and the order matters. And you can kind of see actually a list could be a vector. But we're going to talk about at the end of this episode why a list and a vector, as it's represented in Python, are different things. But, you know, if you're familiar with a list, a vector is just, you know, you have an order and you have a, a bunch of values and they need to stay in the same order. Okay. If we're going to relate this back to machine learning, I like to think of vectors as just a row in a data frame. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's not a difficult kind of foreign concept. And obviously, if you're in a data frame, you have columns and you need to keep all the uh, values in the same order as the columns. Vectors, basically, they can be any size from one, like one column, to infinity, if you can kind of find somewhere to store it. So there's no real constraint on how big a vector can be. And then slightly more complex than a vector is a matrix. A matrix is really just a collection of vectors which have the same number of elements. So if we relate this back to the data example, a data frame is a matrix. Right. You can think of it that way. Yeah. And then there's all sorts of operations that you can do with vectors and matrices. So a really simple one is you can do subtraction and addition. So basically, if you have two vectors, Let's say they have three elements each. Let's say we have one vector, which has one, two, three. And then we have another vector, which has one, one, one. And I take that second vector away from the first vector. What I'll get back is another vector, which has three elements as well. And it will have the values zero, one, two. So you can see you've done that subtraction um, operation by lining up all of those elements and doing the operation element-wise. So it's pretty <laughs> straightforward. It's nothing really yeah, yeah, yeah. difficult or magic there. Right. 
You can also do a bunch of multiplication operations. So there's all sorts of multiplication operations you can do. You just need to make sure that, you know, there's different configurations in terms of the sizes, but we won't really be going into multiplication in this podcast. So there's no real reason to delve into explaining that further. And then another thing you can do is you can do element-wise operations. So say what you do is you have a vector and you want to multiply every element by two. You can do that. So you'll just have, say I have a vector with one, one, one. If I multiply it by two, I will have two, two, two. <laughs> so it's it's not very complicated. And you can do all sorts of operations like um, absolute value, or you can make negative numbers, like all sorts of things that you would just do to a number. You can do to every element inside a vector or a matrix. And so these these matrices and vectors, what we're doing kind of differently than than what you might do in Python with a loop mm. where you'd have to sort of address each one of the elements and create that loop and go through and add the the first elements from you know this list and this the first element from the other list and then you know return it into another list. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's something that NumPy you basically name the two vectors. Mm-hmm. Could be the two columns from the you know a data frame, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. those two individual vectors, and then you put them into its own NumPy method or function, just right, you know yeah. right there that's built into NumPy, and it's doing all of that without the loop. Exactly, exactly. Interestingly, though, and we talked about this a little bit before the episode, some things. You can't escape loops. Okay. So when I was talking about this element-wise application of, you know, a function to every single element in your matrix or your vector. Yeah. So say I'm talking about multiplying every element by two. I actually dug into the the C code under the hood and it is actually doing a loop over every single element in in the vector or the matrix. So it's sort of like, with some things, there's just kind of no way to avoid it, but it's doing the loop in C rather than in Python. So it's it's faster because it's just a faster language. Right. Yeah, NumPy is already kind of written in C. And so how it's managing, kind of addressing where these objects are in, in memory and so forth is a little different than how Python is. Mm-hmm. Um, Python is having to kind of create objects, if you will, for all these different things. Whereas I think the vectors can be a very a simpler data structure <laughs> for it to apply these things to. I think that might be part of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm wondering about this is something that if somebody dug into like the NumPy documentation, you would see all these kind of NumPy uh, methods that can be used I- instead. Exactly, exactly. And um, yeah, we're actually going to talk about one of them in this podcast. But basically. It's actually a very good lead into the next section, which is how cool. uh, Python represents these vectors and these matrices. And, you know, we kind of gave the game away. It's in NumPy and the data structure is an array. So okay, what an array is, is basically it's, we're going to talk a little bit how it's represented in memory later, but you can kind of think of it as a list, but everything has to be the same data type. Oh, okay. So you can't have mixed, yeah, you can't have mixed data types in in arrays. And there are all sorts of array methods. These are the ones you're talking about. So if you did say array dot add, you can add, do that that addition that I was talking about earlier, or subtract. Um, we're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail. There's like an absolute value function. Yeah, there's just all sorts of functions to do the linear algebra operations that you would, you know, learn about if you do a linear algebra course. Cool. Yeah. And this is sort of where tensors come in, actually. So you can have different dimensions to arrays. I find it really difficult to describe what the concept of uh, dimension is. But the way that I kind of think about it is the number of sides of your array, they can change size. I always think of it like a the standard matrix being columns and rows being kind mm-hmm. of the length mm-hmm. and width, the types of things that you would think there, but now you're adding depth, I guess, <laughs> potentially. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly, exactly. So when I think about it, I try to link it back to concepts 
within linear algebra, maybe that's less or more helpful. Maybe, you know, Chris's explanation will make intuitively more sense. But vectors are one-dimensional arrays. And the reason I think about, you know, them as one-dimensional arrays is they can only change in terms of the number of elements they have. Okay. A type's always going to stay the same, unlike a list. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And then matrices are represented as two-dimensional arrays. So as you said, they have rows and columns. So, you know, the first can represent the number of rows, the second, the number of columns, or probably the other way around. The way I think about it is, so you have one dimension representing, again, the number of elements you can have, and then the second dimension representing the number of vectors that are stacked together in that matrix. Okay. But again, it's just rows and columns, like in a data frame. And then you can have higher dimensional arrays. And this is where it gets a little bit wacky. So this is where you're adding in that depth element. These are tensors. So they're all tensors, but like the name that's more traditionally applied to n-dimensional arrays, like three-dimensional arrays and higher is a tensor. Okay. So the way that I think of three-dimensional arrays is like you've got a bunch of matrices and you've stuck them side by side. It's maybe a bit of a weird way to think about it, but like it kind of helps me think, okay, like we have the number of elements, we have the number of vectors, and then we have multiple matrices. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your, your one seems like you're uh, unfolding a, a map. And yes, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The portions of the map kind of are the additional matrices uh, yeah. as you kind of, yeah. Do you ever remember those map books that uh, they're almost disappearing now, but uh, in the U.S., it'd be like, okay, this is Los Angeles, and it'd be like an entire book that oh, had my God, all yes. the streets and stuff like that. And yes. You, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Or or it's kind of like, um, you know how, like a brain scan, how you slice the brain? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of okay. <laughs> very weird analogies. Well, no, and, that would be data that would be, you have to be processed, so. <laughs> yes, that's right, yeah, so. in a neural net. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, let's let's not even try to describe in terms of like something sensical, like four-dimensional arrays and higher. Like I can't even sort of imagine it, but you can have four-dimensional arrays. You can have infinity-dimensional arrays, depending on how you need to represent your data. Okay. Yeah, that's basically what an array is. It's like kind of a list, but again, we'll talk about some other differences later on. And it just has everything of the same type, like all the elements have to be the same type. And yeah. They can have different dimensions. And then you just relate that back to vectors and matrices. That's why that whole process of sort of cleaning your data and sort of normalizing it is kind of crucial. You know, not only does it potentially, you know, if you brought it in from a CSV and they're all like object yes, <laughs> you know, yeah, type yeah, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, well, this isn't this isn't text. Uh this is, you know, in this particular case, it's uh, maybe you could turn it into categories or something mm-hmm. like that. Or um, if it's, you know, numbers, it's like, again, normalizing it down to something that that you know is going to be the same all the way through and, and so mm-hmm. forth. That's kind of why, in order to be able to do these sort of vector-based, in this case, linear <laughs> algebra techniques to them, they have to be the same, right? They can't be yes. sort of generic objects. Exactly. Developers love the InfluxDB time series platform because it handles large time series datasets and provides low latency SQL queries, which helps them build real-time applications and provides insights that they otherwise miss. InfluxDB Cloud is a performant, elastic, serverless time series platform that can ingest billions of data points, such as metrics, events, and traces, in real time with unbounded cardinality and store and analyze and act on that data all in a single database. Check it out and start for free at influxdata.com. That's I-N-F-L-U-X-D-A-T-A dot com. Actually, an interesting aside is, so under the hood, Pandas is using a lot of NumPy. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah, a secret. Cool. Yeah, yeah. But something that I found out about, which is quite interesting, is this uh, concept called the block manager. So it's the idea that if you have um, columns that are the same type, they can be put together in the same like matrix. Like So basically, if I have like one column, one series that's float, and I have another column, like another series that's a float, 
they can be stored together in the same matrix. Oh, okay. Which, yeah. And so it makes like, if you need to do operations that involve the two of them, it's going to be faster than if you are, you know, one's cast as an int and the other is cast as a float. Yeah. And kind of another side for that, Matt Harrison, I think a lot of people would know him. He's extremely well known in terms of his idiomatic uh, Python or effective Python yeah, yeah. Uh, work. We've had yeah. him on, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> About uh, uh, pandas stuff. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but he preaches a lot of this stuff. So you can sort of uh, save a lot of space and optimize the memory allocation of your data frames just by messing around with you know types and, and making sure that you're casting things that should be floats as floats or... Yeah, so it's it's really interesting the sort of work you can do when you start delving in. Yeah. So we've been talking about how to deal with, you know, the different types and kind of Mm-mm. advantages of that. And then you mentioned the the block thing, which is really cool that that's also kind of saving memory. Mm-hmm. And then maybe we should get back to like how maybe these operations are working and kind of getting past the idea of of looping. How are vectors kind of helping with that? Yeah. So let's start with a simple example. So let's say we just have a single loop, nothing too complicated yet. And let's say I want to do an operation like I have two lists. They have the same number of elements or the same length. And I want to subtract them from each other. And this actually is not an uncommon sort of operation that you might need to do with data processing, like especially, you know, anything to do with machine learning. So this is actually like a pretty good example. Um, And if you watch the talk, you'll see that, you know, the k-nearest neighbors algorithm, which is a a classification algorithm, actually uses this as part of its implementation. So, you know, (laughs) this is, it seems like a trivial example, but it is, is actually something that's kind of a common problem. Yeah. So in the past, the way I would have done this is with a loop. So I would have said, okay, give me a range which has you know, goes from zeroth element to, you know, the length minus one element of my two lists. Okay. And what I want you to do is go through every single element one by one, do the subtraction and append it to a new list, right? You know, that's how you would do it with loops. Yeah. But we already talked about the fact that it's sequential. So as your lists grow, you actually end up with slower and slower operations. and If we go back to the data frame example, this means that the more variables that you have in your data frame, the slower this is going to be. And if you need to repeat this for many, many rows, you're going to end up with a lot of processing that you need to do sequentially. Yeah. So uh, something we've already talked about is the subtract method. So what you can actually do is instead of storing these two lists as lists, what you can do is you can convert the data in those lists into arrays. And in this case, it would be 1D arrays. So we can think of them as two vectors. And we basically just use the subtract method in NumPy. And basically, it's not sequential. It's much, much faster. I've done some experiments. Again, if you watch the talk, you'll sort of see solid numbers with the examples that I've used. It's made my code up to four times faster. And they were not big data sets. So with much bigger data sets, you're probably going to see more improvements yeah yeah. and it's a super simple change like in terms of syntax you can actually you can use the subtract method but you can even just use you know subtract notation like mathematical notation between the two vectors and it's actually easier to read than using a loop so yeah i'm big fan big fan of this change it's getting a lot of (laughs) mileage out of it yeah the example i think you were using had to do kind of comparing I don't know if this is, gets into the next one uh, of where we have more dimensions, but the Manhattan distance, mm-hmm. you know, kind of determining how close mm-hmm. things were. Does that lead into the next thing? Yeah, kind of a little bit. So it's kind of a good example as well. So like distance calculations, like how far away things are from each other. That's a yeah. Hence the subtraction. Yeah, right? yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's actually a super common operation in data science work. So or machine learning work, I should say, more to the point. The example that I use in the talk is, let's say you have two data frames and you want to find out the distance between every single row in each of those data frames. So I mean like 
every single row in data frame one needs to be compared with every single row in data frame two. Like we're talking full permutation. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. So, again, expensive. So, if you're doing this with loops, and again, I've done this in the past. Um, I think this was when I ended up sitting there for, or working out I'd be sitting there for five hours. Basically, you would use a nested loop. And we've talked about it already, but nested loops are incredibly expensive. You basically end up with, like, you take the length of the first list and you take the length of the second list and you multiply them. And then that's the number of operations you'll need to do sequentially. And (laughs) yeah, I know. Yeah, it gets big. Yeah, and I think in that talk, I was using a data frame in the first, like the first data frame had something like 27,000 rows and the second data frame had something like 10,000 rows. And it basically would have been something like 140 million sequential operations. And that is not a big data set by machine learning standards. Like you're talking usually like hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of training examples. So yeah, yeah, it it like quickly becomes intractable to do these sort of operations using loops. It's a little bit complicated to explain how we can get rid of the loop. So what I'm going to do is take it in steps. Okay. So let's say the first thing that we want to do is get rid of our, like one of the loops. We don't want to get rid of both of them initially. So what we do is we take the first row of data frame one and we create a new data frame and it contains as many copies as we need to get it to the same number of rows as data frame two. So then we have two data frames which have the same number of rows. Okay. But one of them only contains copies of the first row of data frame one. So then we convert both of these to 2D arrays. So what we then have is conceptually two matrices. And I already kind of gave the answer away, but you can subtract two matrices of the same size. So basically we can use that subtract method in NumPy to subtract row one of data frame one from every single row in data frame two in one pass. So we've made some improvements, but we still have a loop left because we need to loop over every single row of data frame one to complete all those subtractions. So we would be stuck doing this if we didn't have this concept of three-dimensional or higher arrays in NumPy. The reason I was kind of trying to (laughs) describe these higher dimensional arrays in terms of like the number of matrices earlier is it's kind of useful to think about it this way for this example, because 3D arrays can kind of contain multiple matrices stuck together. So what we can do is we can create one 3D array and it contains all of these duplicate matrices. So like your matrix or your data frame containing multiple copies of the first row of data frame one, multiple copies of the second row of data frame one, et cetera. You can kind of like stick them together side by side. Okay. So what the third dimension represents is the number of rows in data frame one. And what the second dimension represents is the number of rows in data frame two. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, so. yeah, it's terribly difficult to describe this without <laughs> yeah, images. Yeah, it looks easier visually, yeah. It yeah. does look a bit easier visually. And you'll sort of see a bit more detail again if you watch the talk. But I think, I think that makes sense. So basically you have this sort of cube and you've got all these duplicates of all the rows of data frame one and you've got all of the rows of data frame two. And the reason that we're doing this is we want to compare across this whole set, right? Exactly, in one pass. Yeah, okay. And this ability to create these copies, if you will, of this one dimension, you know, this this one single column or single row Mm-mm. is called broadcasting, is that right? Yes, yes. So this is like the way that you would get around doing this ex- explicitly. Like instead of creating to three-dimensional arrays, which you have had to explicitly replicate all that data for. Yeah. Because it's like super memory inefficient. 
Yeah, truly making copies and yes, yeah, you know, filling memory with it. Exactly. Yeah, okay. NumPy can sort of do some magic under the hood where it sort of implicitly creates those copies. It sort of like stretches out size of the data frame. So it sort of fills in those copies okay. and it then can do the subtraction for you. Broadcasting is like a little bit difficult to explain. I think probably the best way to explain it is, let's say, like scalar multiplication can be a broadcasting operation. So let's say I have a like a, a vector which has three elements, a one-dimensional NumPy array. Okay. And I want to multiply every element by two again. Under the hood, what NumPy is doing is kind of implicitly creating another vector which has like three copies of two. Okay. And then it's element-wise multiplying every single, the, the, the two in the, the first position, the two in the second position, and the two in the third position by every single element in that vector that you want to multiply by two. Okay. So, yeah, like, so broadcasting is essentially like, sort of like stretching magic <laughs> under the hood. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's sort of certain conditions under which it can work. And I would really recommend just going and reading the documentation and and we'll have a link for that um, in the episode notes. Yeah, when I think about this, this idea of the subtraction thing and, and trying to find distances between things, mm-hmm. that applies to these these models of, like you said, nearest neighbors and things like that, trying to find distances between stuff. And then that's, why you're making you know, going back to our previous conversations these words into mm-hmm, mm-hmm. vectors and and so forth so that you can see oh you know this is conversationally where this is staying and we have to mm-hmm. c- kind of compare it across a whole larger thing and so like that, that's why we're doing these mass amounts of <laughs> <laughs> subtractions potentially right we're looking at like you know large corpuses of stuff mm-hmm. and and having to be able to compare in this first line, this is what was happening. And then to keep the context of it. And, and yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Like to, to think about like why we had to turn them into numbers. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Exactly. It's actually very interesting as well. So I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit, but I think it's like a good point to sort of discuss this. So basically you can get a lot of performance gains with, you know, these sort of vectorized operations. Cause you get rid of the sequential element and we'll talk a little bit later about how, the way that these are stored in memory actually changes the efficiency as well. But beyond a certain point, it's still too costly to calculate every single comparison. Like, so this is where you were talking about the approximate stuff. So I have a story about this actually. So as you know, I I used to work uh, doing NLP work in industry. And we had this one project where Basically, we were working on improving a search engine for jobs. And what we wanted to do was have people input a job title and then at search time, be able to retrieve the most relevant skills to expand the search query so that, you know, if I typed in data science, it would also find jobs for me with Python and machine learning and, you know, Jupyter Notebooks, et cetera. Yeah. So okay. the thing is, What we're talking about then is we had converted all of these words, like the job titles and the skills, into word embeddings. So they were all vectors. Um, But we had something like 200,000 of them. And yeah, in order to basically find the closest vectors at search time was really, really like it wasn't feasible. Like you just couldn't search fast enough. So there's this whole family of techniques called um, approximate approximate nearest neighbors. And the idea is, it's probably getting a little bit too technical, but basically we have these vectors and they have a certain number of elements. And in order to find the nearest neighbor, you need to compare every single element. What you can do instead is you can collapse them to say a single number or lower dimensional spaces, like with less elements, so that you don't have to compare so many numbers. You really just need to, like in the uh, method that we used, we just collapsed it down to a single number. And then you could kind of rank the numbers and then divide them into different hash bins Okay. and just search within a particular box. Okay. So you're, you're finding the page of the map. 
and you know, as opposed to looking across the entire book. Exactly, then. exactly. And instead of say having to look at the map in detail, maybe you've just I don't know divided. I don't know. Actually, I can't think of a map analogy, but um, yeah, like you have neighborhoods or things like that. You're you're you know kind of narrowing the the search um yeah or you've, you've much more broadly yeah or you've yeah. simplified the map like you don't need to know exactly okay. where you need to be right but you could you just be, need to be in this quadrant or whatever yeah, or, or in like this that. suburb or something like that yeah okay so i was sort of uh, got <laughs> i got down a lot of rabbit holes after i started looking into this i got really curious about how something like say um k nearest neighbors this classification algorithm that i was talking about yeah does it in scikit-learn. So to give like a really brief summary of how this works, basically what happens is you have a data set and it has labels. So you know, you know, this particular point belongs to, I don't know, chutney and this one belongs to jam. And clearly I'm a bit hungry. I don't know why I thought it was a spread <laughs> example. This one belongs nice. to peanut butter. <laughs> so then what you have is you have a whole bunch of unknown spreads. Let's say we're talking about spreads. And what you want to do is find the points that are closest to something that you already know. Okay. So what you'll do is you'll take your unknown spread and you'll look at like in, you know, the space around it, what are the closest spreads? So let's say I have like an unknown point and the three closest spreads are all peanut butter. I can make a good guess that this is peanut butter, my unknown spread. Okay. But again, you have to compare your unknown point to every single other point to find out what's closest. Mm. So, under the hood, our uh, implementations of K nearest neighbors in, say, scikit-learn are using approximate nearest neighbors because you don't need to find exactly the distance to every single other spread. You just need to know, okay, I'm in the general neighborhood of peanut butter, so it's good enough. Okay. So, yeah. It's it's really interesting. Like these are not problems that I would have thought about before I started working with a lot of data. And it's surprising how difficult they are to solve. Is it like that in the case of your spreads example, mm. there would be like, uh, you know, I'm going to dive deeper into your food example. <laughs> yeah. There would be like like these factors that move it in one direction or another it's sweet or it's sour or it's you know savory or something exactly like that. yeah and that would work out exactly okay. where it is so so it's easiest to think about this stuff in two dimensions and again if you watch the talk you'll see um i use dried beans um i'm always coming up with very weird <laughs> examples um, that's okay but as long as they're tangible <laughs> as long as they're tangible that's the most important yeah. thing um but, yeah. if, but if you imagine it in two dimensions we could have like a sweetness dimension and then we we could have um, like a dryness or a thickness dimension. Okay. So you would sort of expect that peanut butter would like classify, you know, moderately on sweetness and then high on dryness. And then jam would be very high on sweetness and, you know, right. very low on yeah, okay. dryness. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Spreadability. Spreadability. <laughs> I'll give you something to think about next time you go to the spreads aisle. Yeah, <laughs> Get sure. something for your toast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like amazing kind of how complex it can get. And um, I actually do want to do a follow-up talk to the, the one that we're, we're referencing in this uh, podcast, which does talk about more about approximate spaces and things like that, because it's quite elegant the way it can be solved and it's not complicated again mathematically this week i want to shine a spotlight on another real python video course data scientists spend a large amount of their time cleaning data sets so that they're easier to work with obtaining and cleaning data typically accounts for 80 percent of the time spent on any given project based on the topic this week i felt this course fit the theme it's titled Data Cleaning with Pandas and NumPy, and it's based on RealPython tutorial by Malay Argawal. In the video course, Ian Curry shows you about dropping unnecessary columns in a data frame, changing the index of a data frame, using string methods to clean columns, renaming columns to have a more recognizable set of labels, skipping unnecessary rows in a CSV file, cleaning dates and text based on rules, and much more. This is one of our intermediate video courses, 
To get the most out of this tutorial, you should have some basic understanding of the pandas and NumPy libraries. And if that's not the case, RealPython has you covered with even more courses on the fundamentals of pandas and NumPy. RealPython video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the Enhanced Search tool on realpython.com. Did you have a solution then for the job thing mm -hmm. that helped yes. you do that? So we did end up using this approximate nearest neighbors implementation. So basically what we did was we reduced all this like, I think they were like 100 dimension or 100 element vectors. We reduced them down to just one single number. Okay. And then ranked them. Okay. Cut them into bins. And then, yeah, basically it meant at search time, you really only had to compare with like, I don't know, 100 other potential okay. like skills that would be related to that job title. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool, actually. So, yeah, it was probably one of the most interesting things I did in terms of like machine learning deployment. Yeah. Yeah, and it like involved like a lot of reading and stuff. But in the, in the end, the solution was very elegant. So, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, so I think we've talked about uh, how to get rid of loops in terms of, you know, doing pairwise comparisons. Yeah, There's, and then broadcasting them if yes. if you need to do, like, larger comparisons and potentially, you know, having to build the dimensions if they're exactly, not there. Exactly, exactly. So this sort of, like, cuts out a lot of time. And, yeah, like, you can get... I've seen gains of, like, 10 times faster, I'm sure. Again, with larger data sets, you can see more, but... Again, we'll come back to when maybe it's not going to be so efficient, but there's just one other um, example I wanted to cover first. And okay. this is like something that I would do often early on when I was learning Python, which is when you have a structure like a list of lists or a list of tuples, and you essentially need to extract, say, the first element of every tuple or every nested list. And so you can do a list comprehension or a loop, they're the same thing under the hood, and go, okay, like give me index zero of every list in this list of lists, and you'll kind of loop through it. Yeah. But again, if you need to do that for a long list of lists or list of tuples, it's really expensive. So it's actually like a nice little trick, but if you cast that list of lists to an array, what you have is a 2D array. You essentially have a pandas data frame and you can just right. slice it column wise. And it's now a columnar operation and it's much more efficient. And you can do, you can translate if you need to, like depending on how the data is laid out, slice either the column or, or the row, mm -hmm. depending on which way the data kind of laid exactly. out and what you're trying to trying to extract out of yeah, it. Okay. Yeah, so um, matrices, you can really just treat them row-wise or column-wise um, and the same with arrays. So yeah, it just depends on what axis you want to do it on. But it's, yeah, it's okay. also, again, slightly more readable syntax, I would say. So it's kind of interesting that something you would think that is a bit of an abstraction is actually a bit more maintainable, <laughs> I think, in terms of the code readability. Yeah. Yeah. Broadcasting, I think, is not so readable. But I think once you get used to it, it's, you know, kind of clear what you're trying to do. Yeah. It's it's nice that it has that functionality of doing the uh, repetitions and that sort of stuff internally mm -hmm. and, and finding, you know, methods to speed that up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Potentially, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think cool. I've kind of covered all the points where I want to talk about, you know, the advantages. Maybe we can talk about what's going on under the hood at a very high level because I'm not an internals person. <laughs> so this is, yeah, this is going to be my... That's okay. Yeah. This podcast doesn't usually dive too deep into the mm. internals of uh, of that sort of stuff. Um, we've occasionally talked to, you know, people that work on CPython mm. itself and 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 get into the, the C layer, but even they will say, I I don't know it all. Yes. <laughs> I can I can traverse it, but it's not like, you know, it, it can get really deep. And in a library like this, the same thing, I think. 
Yes. Um, like you said, NumPy uh, or Pandas builds on top of, of NumPy and takes advantage of it. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting to see at its core, like NumPy was you know designed to do this sort of stuff, like mm-hmm. be able to kind of work with uh, and, and do the linear operations as opposed to trying to do them in these other methodologies, which is nice to like, okay, yes, this is why it exists and how it can really help you and uh, and kind of see what's happening. So, Yeah, and it's something that I actually, I, I think it's no secret that we all love Python. Um, but one of the things I do love about Python is it sort of grows with you. So yeah, you can sort of start with loops and lists and it's it's not a problem. It's okay. Like, you know, I still use loops and lists a lot. But when you need something more performant or maybe more maintainable or whatever, Python has that flexibility and it really is like, you know, it's, it's obvious why it's become one of the de facto languages for data science because NumPy is incredible. The amount of stuff you can do with it is, is great. So, yeah, like it's, it's super cool that I could go from <laughs> someone who was probably a bit scared of you know, the terminal and the command line to feeling like, okay, I can actually leverage NumPy properly and really understand what's going on. But Python, yeah, you know, Python was there for me the whole time. Like it didn't, didn't judge me using my loops. <laughs> yeah. And what's awesome is that many other people have had the problem that you're mm-hmm. going to hit. Yeah. <laughs> and some of them may have created additional solutions and and those mm-hmm. tools are potentially already there for you to get into and so it, it's it's nice to you know have that big footprint yes um and headed in so many different directions yes you know, it can be overwhelming to think like well, you know oh, i have to learn it all it's like no, no. you don't <laughs> you can you can learn what you need to learn and and if you're butting your head against something then somebody else probably has done that and you can probably you know find some solutions and tools and uh, methods for helping you yeah, out. Yeah, actually, like an aside about the uh, Python packages um, for approximate nearest neighbors. So in the end, we had to implement it in Java because that was what our entire ecosystem was written in. But when I was oh, okay. prototyping stuff, obviously, I wanted to find Python packages because my Java is <laughs> my Java's not great. And there's one which is my favorite naming-wise, which is from Spotify, called Approximate Nearest Neighbors Oh Yeah. Because they wanted to use the acronym acronym annoy, <laughs> so I'm just <laughs> nice. like a shameless yeah. acronym. I loved it. It really made me yeah. laugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Spotify have been releasing lots of interesting um, packages and and mm. open sourcing some stuff. Some I've been able to get working, and others it's been a little harder. Mm. But like in the audio sphere, it's been oh interesting. yeah, but, I can imagine. Uh, I'm glad that they're open about yeah. it. Yeah. One of them, I had to get like a, a really large tech stack set up on my my new mm. Mac, and it was like not ready for M1. It was like really frustrating. Oh god, so, yeah, the M1 uh, <laughs> compatibility issues. It was yeah. it was a really yeah. It's getting better. Yeah, but yeah. Was, I was struggling that with uh, with that with uh, TensorFlow this week actually. Like I was playing around with it with an M1 Mac, and um, yeah, let's just say TensorFlow and M1 is an ongoing. Uh, yeah, it's frustrating. I hope they get that solidified. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> that was like over, I don't know, maybe nine months ago that I was playing with that. And mm-hmm. then it was like, oh, come on, guys. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, I love a, <laughs> a good backronym, back like you a said. A good backronym, so. especially when it's so shameless. It's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. So let's actually talk about uh, one of the most interesting things, which I think is how. How arrays are stored in memory versus lists. Okay. This is going to be a very high-level overview because, again, this is the level of understanding I have. But basically, memory is divided up into these blocks, and the blocks are called pages. And the way I kind of think about them is, uh, I don't know how familiar readers, uh, readers, listeners are with the UK, but UK postcodes sort of divide up your street into like a group of like five houses or so. Like it's quite specific. Hmm. So okay. I kind of think of like pages in memory, like UK postcodes, like they're kind of All right. quite specific, but it's not down to the level of an individual house or an individual room or something. It's just, you know, a bit. How many digits are in a postcode? I think it's six, but it's a combination of letters and numbers. Oh, it's got letters. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because you guys, because in Germany, we have the. F- we have zip codes, which are really 
I don't know. They feel very random. I mean, they, they get you yeah, in the yeah. ballpark. But, but you've, got the, you've got the Zip 9 <laughs> so. as well, I remember. Um, oh, yeah, we do, yeah. And that, that I... It's never been explained to me, but yeah, it gets really specific then with, yeah. Nine oh, digits, I spent a lot of yeah. time with Zip9. I think it was explained to me as like half a street in suburbia. And don't even ask about oh, built up areas because it's usually just one building. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, back to memory <laughs> from postcodes. <laughs> and postcodes. Yes, yeah. and postcodes. So, basically, when the CPU wants to process something, it won't do operations on variables unless they're directly in proximity to it. So pretty much what happens is you, say, create a variable called A, like A equals three or something in Python, that'll be stored on a page. Yeah. And in order for the CPU to do an operation on A, the whole page that A is located on will be copied or not copied, moved close to the CPU. And then it gets moved back after the operation's done. So you can see that <laughs> there's a cost involved here. You're not just moving A, you're moving A and everything around it. Yeah. So the thing with lists is that lists aren't actually stored in sequential chunks of memory. They could be stored on a bunch of different pages. So the same list might have elements spanned over multiple pages. Right, okay. And... This means that when you need to do operations on that list, you're basically moving potentially many, many pages, even for a short list. The kind of defining feature of an array in Python, um, not just NumPy, but arrays as, as a structure, is they're stored in sequential blocks of memory. And so that means that less pages need to be moved in order to complete operations. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So uh, apparently this is actually the major reason that you have so much time cost when you're doing these sequential operations because you're just moving multiple pages around. Yeah, kind of seems obvious, I guess. <laughs> but like, yeah. No, no, yeah. It's like, yeah, that kind of memory management stuff that's happening under the hood, there's a lot of shuffling around happening. The, the fact that a, a list can have, you know, whatever size elements, <laughs> if you will, yes. in it. You can have a list with lists in it, you know, and things like uh -huh, that. Uh -huh. Whereas an array is uh, structurally, mm -hmm. they're the same. They're homogenous or whatever you want to call it. The same style yes. or data type across that whole thing. So you, you would have, and and you're saying they're also sequential as far as like where they would be laid out page pages wise? Exactly. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's always a sequential memory block. Okay. And that kind of leads to a potential disadvantage. This is this is a theory I have. <laughs> I don't know if this is backed up by anything, but okay. something I noticed when I was doing these, you know, broadcast operations, especially with really large data sets, like not really large, like I'm talking like 50,000 rows, like as I doubled the data sets. Okay. Basically, the amount of time to actually complete that operation or the, the amount of advantage I got over doing a nested for loop started getting smaller and smaller. And I was like, what's going on here? The theory I have, and I don't know how correct this is, is if you think about it, even if you are doing a broadcast operation, so you don't have to like, you know, create a giant array under the hood to do this, say a subtraction, you're still going to have a gigantic array as the output of your operation. Because you've got all these pairwise differences that you've calculated. Okay. And you need, to, you need to store it, and you need to store it sequentially. So I imagine what's happening, but I could be wrong, is that there's a bunch of shuffling happening under the hood where basically things are being moved around to free up enough sequential memory space to store <laughs> this gigantic array that you've created. And that potentially just eats up a lot of the time that you would have gained by doing it in a vectorized fashion but yeah yeah this is where i think uh the memory profilers and these other tools mm -hmm. that i've talked to a handful of people about really come into play i think is like okay well you know maybe if i mm -hmm. size my operation slightly different or you know i attack it from a different way i can kind of see you know where the memory is being used and how it's being used yes and yeah that's where that all might come into play as you <laughs> try to you know like you said, optimize your code to, to, to work in those situations if you're suddenly getting blocked. Mm -hmm. 
I think it also kind of brings up that NumPy, and I was actually surprised to learn this like a while back, but NumPy is not a GPU library. NumPy is CPU only. So, okay. yeah. yeah, and like, obviously GPUs are sort of designed to do all of this sort of <laughs> linear algebra is what, is what they were made for. They were made for gaming and gaming right. involves Which a bunch just, of, yeah. You, you got to imagine that's full of vectors. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah, like I think um, I've been doing quite a lot of reading about PyTorch lately and, you know, under the hood, what PyTorch is doing is massive amounts of linear algebra, like matrix algebra, this sort of stuff we've been talking about against explicitly against GPUs. So I also think, you know, NumPy can take you so far, but if you really need to do like serious, like number crunching that can be represented as an array you're probably best jumping over, I think, into the GPU realm because the the differences are astronomical, like the size differences that you get, uh, sorry, the time differences you get. Right. Yeah. That investment, you may be looking at, you know, if you're not going to get, you know, the hardware yourself, you can at least rent the hardware, Mm -hmm. you know, through some service or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And that's where that, like, uh, CUDA... Coupai. Is that NVIDIA? Is that right? Oh, yeah, NVIDIA is, um, yeah, CUDA. Yeah, okay, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. And all their, yeah, all their tools that kind of go along with that to speed everything up. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And I can tell you from personal experience training neural nets, you will not regret investing the time to set up a connection to a GPU machine. It Okay. Like. It's shocking. (laughs) It's shocking. Um, Although I was reading this really interesting point uh, today where basically there's obviously like you're not going to keep all of your data on a GPU machine because they're really expensive. So basically what you'll be doing is you have like a reading and writing process, like an IO, where basically you need to transfer your data over to your GPU machine, do your calculations, and then transfer it back. So they're actually saying like the small data sets, well, you've still got the IO overhead, so you may not want to necessarily default to using gpu so yeah like it's diminishing returns diminishing returns for... yeah as, as it gets okay. your data set gets too small so yeah anyway it's very complicated um but <laughs> i i hope i hope actually we've been able to break it down a bit and sort of yeah yeah i i think um if people want a little more of the visual mm. elements to it that your talk does a good job of that and kind of goes through these examples and look at to see your example of the, the, the beans, beans. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> being used there and and then uh i think if you don't have a background at all with you know working in vectors and kind of understanding how that relates to uh linear algebra that maybe that other talk that you mentioned Mm-mm. or the uh the course, course yeah. uh yeah might be really good i'm interested in checking that out too because i think that it might help kind of maybe cement some of my knowledge on on this stuff. I, you know, I've worked with and kind of understand functionally what's going on, but like at a deeper level, it's like, okay, well, you know, you know, what are, you know, what's kind of behind all of that? And, and uh, yeah, it's, it, I feel like we get so stuck in buzzwords and, yeah. <laughs> and, and terms and, um, and often you go to read articles on this stuff and it's like, it's hard just to parse because they, you know, they assume that you're at this particular reading level, if you will, yes. and have all that vocabulary in your head already. And it's like, well, could you slow down and just explain that concept, even if it takes a paragraph or whatever? Mm-hmm. So I have a few real Python resources. One is an article or a tutorial called Look Ma, No For Loops, <laughs> uh, Array Programming with NumPy that kind of builds on some of the stuff we're talking about today. And then I have another NumPy tutorial about sort of the first steps into data science in Python that I think might help a little bit, some other resources there. And, you know, as always, we always have <laughs> lots of stuff in the show notes. So either if I add more or uh, Jody sends me more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you have any... uh? talks coming up that uh you're getting planned for now that you've had a nice little kind of 
pause here <laughs> for the holidays? Yeah, so it was crazy, actually. There were so many CFPs due in December and January. It was, yeah, it was yes. mad. Yeah, that was yes. massive. Yeah. So I have been lucky enough to be invited as a panel speaker at DataCamp Radar. Um, that's a virtual conference. Okay. Yeah, so Where's that? we're going to be doing um, just virtual. So, okay. yeah, yeah. What what's the dates on that? It is in late March, so I think March twenty second, if I'm remembering correctly. Okay. Um, so still a couple of months until that one. So that'll be a panel discussion, just talking about sort of like the future of Jupiter, and um, there'll be yeah, there'll be a couple of other guests from other companies that are developing IDEs or other sort of. There's a lot happening. There's in that space, a lot so. happening. I'm so excited about this actually because there's. Good. Yeah, and I'm actually going to be recording a podcast with the guy who um, is organizing this, um, Adele Neme. I'll be recording that next week on a similar topic. So that's the Data Frame podcast. Okay. Yeah, so really looking forward to it. Like it's a it's a very cool and interesting topic. And then I was accepted to the Python Web Conference. I'll actually be giving this talk <laughs> um, that I'll be giving. Oh, cool. Yeah, but I'll... I just had uh, Calvin on the show. Oh. Um, from from six feet up, uh, he, yeah. We, he's such a sweet guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we talked to uh, Airflow, oh, um, awesome. which was really kind of fun, kind of diving into. Yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'll be at PyCon US with JetBrains. Nice. Also going to be at a conference called Machine Learning Prague. Not presenting at either of them so far, though I am on the standby list for PyCon US. So I'm crossing my fingers. Yeah, yeah. I, I know it's like a one percent <laughs> chance, but it's not a zero percent chance. So. Yes. That's good. <laughs> yes. Still got to have it prepped. You got to have it prepped. You got to have it prepped. So yeah. And then just waiting to hear from a few more conferences. But it's it's funny because everything is back this year. Like last year, I think people were still understandably cautious about like yeah. really planning. It's like 60, 70% kind of back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Coming together. Yeah. yeah. So I'm actually, I was so burned out by the end of last year because I went to reInvent in Las Vegas. That was my last conference of the year. And it is, I wasn't ready for Vegas. <laughs> Let's put it that way. It was just... Yeah, it, it's it's a thing on it its was, own it was, alone in having a conference. It was there. a thing, yes. <laughs> so it was incredible. And like I met amazing people and it was absolutely worth it. I went and saw the Grand Canyon as well, which was... Oh, you did? I did. Wow, it was cool. so good. Yeah, it's always nice. Yeah, but I'm trying to just you know, pace myself because it's a big year and yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Definitely leave breaks for some downtime there Yeah, in between all that travels, yeah. But yeah, but if you're in PyCon US, I would love to talk to you. I'm going to be around at the JetBrains booth and we're planning something special this year. So yeah, I would just come say hi. Don't be shy. I'm very friendly. Yeah, you guys always have an amazing booth, so that's going to be great. Yes, yes. Still in the planning stages, so I can't say anything, but Uh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show again. It's been fantastic talking to you, and uh, I hope we get to talk a little more later this year. Yeah, I hopefully will be back with a new interesting topic soon. And uh, yeah, really lovely to talk to you as always. All right. Well, thanks again. Bye. And don't forget, easy to start and scale. Companies like IBM, Cisco, and Red Hat all rely heavily on InfluxDB. Check out why they chose InfluxDB. Get started for free today at InfluxData.com. I want to thank Jody Birchall for coming on the show again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.